You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to 3 a.m. 3 a.m. 3 a.m. Where we discuss and dissect the supernatural. What's the scariest thing you've encountered? That's been one of our favorite questions for years. 3 a.m. is the result of asking this question over and over again. Stories we share are typically sourced from those we know, our listeners, or personal experience. The validity of which can be determined by you, the listener. While we might not have all the answers, we find the culture and lore surrounding paranormal events and unnatural occurrences fascinating. We hope you enjoy. We hope you enjoy. We hope you enjoy. Yo, so this last week, for the first time in a year plus for me, we went and saw a movie in theaters. Oh my goodness. We did. What movie did we see? Oh, the best. It was the best, dude. I loved it. (laughs) We went and saw Mortal Kombat, dude. (sighs) So much of my childhood was in that movie. It was so fun. I was trying not to geek out too bad, but if you know Mortal Kombat, you know like things that were going to happen. So I was sitting there like next to my wife like, oh my gosh, like Jax is going to lose his arms. <laughs> Stuff like that. And she's looking at me. She's like, I have no idea what you're talking th- no, I, I don't care at all. <laughs> so I was like, fine, turn to DJ. <laughs> That's Kano. <laughs> but it was awesome. It, regardless of the movie, I would have had a good time whatever movie we saw. Because I love movie theaters. I missed them so bad. Oh, yeah. Just like hanging out and all watching a movie at the same time. Yeah. It, being big movie fans, like it, it was really nice being in, in the theaters. Just a dedicated space for watching because obviously you watch at home, but it's too easy to get distracted, be on your phone, which I do most of the time. So being in the theaters where you kind of have to not do anything else. Or you're just paying to be distracted. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and movie popcorn. Dude, Utah is nice. dope because every Tuesday they have like $5 movie. And because of the, you know, the pandemic or whatever, they have like super discounted prices for their concessions. And, and every other row they sit or every other row they leave empty. So everybody has a chance to put their feet up on the seat in front. It's super nice. Dude, everyone knows that feeling when you're like in the theater kind of early and you're right in the middle and you're like, this is so dope. And you put your feet up. And then some <laughs> asshole out of the corner of your eye, you see some some couple just shuffling, walking their way, bumping everybody's 60 knees. 60 open seats to the left, 70 open seats to the right, and they sit right in front of you and you have to put your feet down. And the movie's ruined. It's just rude, dude. 
It's like when there's like 17 urinals and the creeper picks the one right next to you. Okay, so my critical review of Mortal Kombat, I give a 7.5 out of 10. Dude, I give it an 8, 10. Dude, yeah. Oh, I was thinking about 8, but I was like, I don't know. These guys might think I'm too high there. (laughs) So I brought it down a little bit. Got a little (laughs) self-conscious about your score. It was nostalgic. It was really entertaining. We recommend it. 3 a.m. recommends. I think if you go in... Not with the expectation to be moved emotionally or like right. changed fundamentally, but to have fun, it was a really good movie. Well, yeah. I think that's what you get with Mortal Kombat. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. you can't expect to go in being to be moved. Exactly. Like, <laughs> I was I was talking to some coworkers and like we heard it was super corny. I was like, Well, have you seen the original? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like, yeah. You can't like if they were trying to be super serious in the movie, hmm. no. They were pretty self aware without like how corny they were. So I just let it go. Yeah. yeah. I walked in with super low expectations and I walked out happy. Yeah. So it was fun. Recommend 10-10. Oh. As long as it. No, no. I mean, <laughs> shit. 10-10 recommend a 7-10 movie. Yeah. There you <laughs> go. There you go. <laughs> cool. On the real though, when people sit in front of you, I feel like that's so petty. Oh. <laughs> when. Petty of them or petty of you to get mad at it? <laughs> I'm going to make this about me, so petty of them, <laughs> especially if there's empty seats next to them. Dude, I low-key, self-admit, am super petty. And I came to this realization when I was watching Save the Last Dance with Michael Jordan, right? Is that oh, what it's called? The Last Dance. Oh, The Last Dance with Michael Jordan. So if you haven't seen it, um, it's a documentary about like the Bulls and their rise when they were like the best, and with a huge focus on Michael Jordan. Yeah, And there are several parts in that movie where someone says something to Michael <laughs> Jordan and it fuel it fills him with rage and motivation to where he like does the impossible to get back at them. And I was watching it and I was like, dude, I straight up do the same thing <laughs> where like someone will say something to me and it could be pretty innocuous or like pretty doesn't mean anything. But to me, I'm like, dude. I will prove you wrong to the end of the earth because you said that. <laughs> There's some of them I won't share with you, but I am currently right now like trying to prove them wrong. But like one of them, like I, for instance, I still think about a teacher in my high school who said one comment to one of my friends, didn't even say it to me. And I do not forget it. And I always think like one day I'm going to make something out of myself one day, not yet. And I will freaking rub it in his face in my mind maybe yeah. not in person but in my mind that was right before you dropped out of high school huh I think <laughs> as i'm dropping out yeah if you don't know when Super i was petty when i was 16 i found out you could take a test and leave high school so i drove myself signed myself up took the test like half asleep and then it was like a room full of like 50 year old people trying to get their ged in california <laughs> you're like i'm ahead of you guys <laughs> straight up though i walked i was like this is the easiest thing in the world filled it out and like turned it in i didn't think about it just kept going to school and then one day they were like uh you have your ged you don't have to be here anymore <laughs> and i was like oh okay uh see ya <laughs> and i just left i went to like class like two or three more times after that because i was like i don't know what to do they're like you're done with school <laughs> anyway i'm super petty I'm not going to lie. There's some times where I'm seeing people have success and I'm like, f*** that person. <laughs> but it's just like me working through that. Do you guys have any pettiness or anything you can think of? Well, it's funny because you travel like any decent person try to, tries to travel like a high road 
or hold themselves to certain standards. And then when something triggers their pettiness, then the the hills they choose to die on <laughs> just get increasingly low yeah. to what their previous high road was. Do you have a story perhaps? <laughs> oh, dude. I'm really I'm really bad at thinking of answers for specific questions. Like out of thin air. I'm always thinking of them when I'm showering or like driving and they'll just pop into my head. No worries. I think the pe- sometimes the pettiness in me comes out like while I'm driving. Or if I, I if I see someone doing something I think in my head is an asshole move, I'm like, oh, hell no, I'm going to let you in, you know? <laughs> like, get out of here. Okay, well then, parlaying that question, what motivates you guys? And I know that's like a super broad question, but I guess try to apply it to what we were just talking about. <laughs> I'll go first. <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling very unmotivated. Yeah. <laughs> you go. Obviously not questions are what motivate you guys. <laughs> I'm like, so anyway. No, uh, like I said before, pettiness is one. We're like, if I know you think I can't, I will find a way to show you I can. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And I know that's not the greatest, but uh, do you have thoughts on that? Like, as long as I get it done, I kind of feel like it justifies. Like, it's not great that because someone says you can't, you're going to do it. Like, yeah, like, maybe that's not the purest motivating factor. No, dude, I think that's chill. I, I kind of do, too. And I I tell people this. I'm a high-anxiety person a mm. lot of the times, but I'm very aware of it, and I also use it to accomplish things. Mm-hmm. So, like, I'm constantly thinking of stuff, and for a lot of people, they're like, dude, like, calm down. Or, And so it's in my head, I, I think it's negative, but I also use it to, like, get shit done. So I don't right. know. I don't think I've ever been, like, told by someone that I couldn't do something, which, I like, makes me extremely lucky. And maybe I have, and I just can't remember it. It's not the thing that motivates me. Mm-hmm. I would say what motivates me is to do things that I have never done before to prove to myself that I can do them mm. or just competition. I was going to say, you are one of the most competitive mofos I've ever <laughs> met in my life. Sean did. Sean quit video games for four years because I, <laughs> I whooped his ass at Super Smash Brothers once, and I didn't know that. And late, like four years later, he told me he's like, "Yeah, I straight up did not pick up another video game because of that." And I was like, "Whoa!" <laughs> uh, I do remember you and I were playing a volleyball game once, and against these people who, when they were winning, they started to gloat. And oh, I yeah. in sports, I am under competitive because. I'm afraid if I try and fail, it's that's bad. So I straight up do not care. But these mofos were gloating so bad. I like turned to Sean and I look at him and Sean, I, I can see like the fire of competition in his <laughs> eyes. And I look at him, I'm like, let's f- kill them. And we start to play so hard. And it's like family. It's family event, dude. And Sean and I are out there trying to spike the ball into people's faces. And we start winning. Dude, it was... Dude, yeah, it's just the pleasure of beating someone else that I, I find joy in that. I think there's another source of motivation, and it happens in our living room every Thursday morning. Thursday, Friday morning. Sean, can you tell us a little more about that? <laughs> I don't think he can. What? Okay, so what happens is this started like maybe two months ago or so. I wake up. Sean's already working in the living room. So on his laptop, typing away, I can hear the click-clack of the keyboard from my bedroom. And I also hear 
this Inception-like orchestral music with narration. That's usually Friday. <laughs> okay, Thursday, Friday, <laughs> end of the week. You know what I'm talking about now? Yeah, I know what you're talking okay. about now. I'm really it? glad that this is like inspiring everyone else around me. What the hell is it? I, I uh, enjoy motivational YouTube videos. Oh. And we'll put them on for an hour or two in the morning on Fridays and, you know, just feel super motivated. Hell yeah, brother. <laughs> it's highly motivational. Do you actually get motivated from them? Me, I don't know as much because we're laughing because, or I'm laughing because it's also highly corny. Oh, it's very, sometimes I'm like, well, this is kind of weird. Okay, cue music. Like a phoenix rising from the ashes. (laughs) You too will overcome today. That's Sean for like two hours coaching his his team on how to sell. Well, shit, it's working. It it works. (laughs) Yeah. And that's all that matters. Is that all but, that matters? I guess that's my question. So, like, my pettiness, me getting things done, as long as I'm getting it done, is that okay? This is what I think. And I could be very wrong, but you know how, I don't know if you guys ever took, like, the ethics class in college or anything, but one of the things they bring up is do the ends justify the means? Mm-hmm. And to me, I think yes. Oh, shit. Interesting question. Like, if... <laughs> you're accomplishing something good, then it justifies the means outside of, like, you know, killing people or... Like a perfect race. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe like a top performer, you know? So I think think your pettiness does justify the the means. I needed that permission. Thank you. (laughs) That's very Aryan of you, too. (laughs) Dope. Guys, I think... We should just get straight into stories tonight. Cut the cut the chit chat. Let's do this. Okay. All right. So now we roll our twenty sided die to determine in what order we tell our story. Highest number goes first. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever had a relationship that you're proud of? Proud of because you put in the work, and the other person put in the work as well. Uh, didn't have to be perfect. But uh, effort was made, honest effort. I think it's definitely more rare to have those types of relationships. Uh, the good thing is with, with therapy, at least in my experience, uh, that's something I've been able to find. Uh, somebody who invests in me, uh, especially when I invest in myself. And we'd love, love, love for you to experience something similar. So if you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Uh, it's entirely online, designed to be convenient and flexible, suited to your schedule. Uh, become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Uh, go ahead and visit BetterHelp.com slash 3 a.m. today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash 3 a.m. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Can't wait till we have an overhead GoPro on this. <laughs> action Real action. <laughs> What's up? What are the numbers? Woo! 
Oh, oh critical failure. So it's me, Charles, and Sean. And the numbers were 18, 4, and 1. So this story takes place in Australia. Oh. Imagine you're riding on the beach, on, on the shores, on a horse. Ooh. Exactly. Nice. You're a training jockey. Giddy up, mate. And it's early morning, taking your horses for a little run, and a little jog in to start the day off. So the beach is fairly empty, except in the distance, you see somebody laying on the beach. It's the only other person. And you start closing the distance. The person hasn't moved. They're sleeping. And you get up right next to them. And you tell yourself, that doesn't look like a sl- comfortable sleeping position. <laughs> get off your horse. You shake this person. No response. You just found a dead body. Oh. So is the story. Who said they wanted to, though? That was you. You've always wanted to find a dead body. Did I say that? I feel like. Yeah, I don't know what the hell I want. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So is the story for these two men in Australia riding horses. (laughs) Um, So they report it to the authorities. They come scoop this dude up. It's a clean shaven. Early 50s, Caucasian male, and there's nothing that seems to be wrong with him. No cuts or wounds, bruises. He's in a suit and tie. None of his clothing have tags on them, and he has no form of identification. And they are struggling to find out the identity of this man. So they're doing everything they can trying to figure out cause of death, and they can't really find anything. Theories start coming up. Uh, Some people think he was poisoned. That was ruled out. There was no evidence of poison in his body, in his blood work samples. A theory came up that he was a Soviet spy who was assassinated. And then theories of just suicide. So after some time, the coroner, the, the head coroner leading this, Um, wrote in the notes, I am unable to say how he died or what was the cause of death. Shitty coroner or (laughs) truly a mystery. (laughs) So we have an unknown dead man on the beach. Everybody's questioning and there's no answers. Until a month later, they're going through his belongings, which were just his clothes, and they can see in... The waist of the pant, there's a hidden makeshift uh, pocket sewn. Sick. So they take that out. There's a folded piece of paper. And the paper reads, Tamam Shud. Which in Persian means finished or the end. What? It's Barreau. So this happens about a month later. It takes that long for them to find... Their very first piece of evidence. Sounds, sounds about right, Australia. <laughs> They're like, fair dinkum, mate. <laughs> Did anyone check the body? So it's now January 1949. And this is all happening uh, in Adelaide. Where is that in Australia? It's like the so far, this is far like, west? N- no, Adelaide's like. Oh, it's on the bottom, close to Tasmania. Yeah, the southern 
part of Australia. Yeah, but up, up a little bit. Australia is kind of shaped like a dog head, so it would be like under his chin. Does that make sense? I don't know. Sure. So this is in Adelaide, and uh, the beach he was found on uh, is called Somerton. So this case is, or this this dude is known as the Somerton Man. A month later, they find the note, and soon after, a suitcase is found in the storage room at the Adelaide Railway Station, and they're positive that it's linked to this man. It was never confirmed, but they did find clothing that was similar, more suit coats, no tags. And the same type of thread used to sew that little hidden pocket in his pants. They tracked that brand, and that brand wasn't sold in Australia. Which I don't know how you track that, especially in the late 40s. But that was in the notes. Another month passes by, and a man comes into the police station. And he says, I was at Somerton Beach. I parked so a hot day, so I left my windows down. Went in for a quick dip, came back, and this book was in my back seat, laying in my back seat, as if somebody had placed it there while I was gone. This book is called The Bible. The Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, which is basically a compilation of poems by some slick old math nerd from Persia. Why do I remember Persia? So they open the book and they flip through the pages. And at the end, there's a cutout. And they take the note that was found from the body. They unfold it and it fits perfectly in that book. So it didn't stop there. If you turn the page, you have the back cover. And on the back cover was a secret code, about three or four lines, And at the bottom, a phone number. So what do you do? Call Naturally, (laughs) call the phone number. From not your phone. So the police are finally gaining, you know, there's no end in sight right now, but this is the best, you know, traction that they've gotten. It sounds like the dopest. Scavenger hunt? Yeah. I ruined my joke. What's one of those things where you go in and you have to get out? Escape. Yeah, dude. This sounds so sick. I would pay someone to set this up for me. Contact me. So they they call the number, and it goes to a one Jesse Joe Thompson, who goes by Joe. Young woman. She's a nurse. So they start talking to her, and they say, did you ever own the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, this book? She said, yeah, I had a copy, but I gave it away. Likely story, dude. They say, who did you give it to? Gives it to a friend. They follow up with the friend. Friend has the book in possession. What the Flip to the end. It's all intact. Nothing's ripped out. So she's telling the truth as far as they know. They still want to talk to her. So they bring her into the studio. They say, do you think you could identify this man if you saw him? They explain the case to her. She's kind of skeptical, but she's... She submits to it. Unfortunately, at that point, they had already buried him, but Australia. <laughs> they plaster casted his body. So they had like the, the plaster version of him mm. laying out and they bring her to him. And the lead detective was quoted 
from this experience saying that on site, Joe nearly fainted looking at the plaster version of this dude. It's not an actual dead body. I don't know if, like, was it that realistic or no. It seems like she had to have known him, you know. She completely denies knowing who this man was. Not only that, she asked for her name to be removed from the case file. At that point, I guess a little time after that, for some reason, murder was ruled out. They didn't have any concrete evidence of any motives. They didn't really have any other leads than what I've told you so far. So the police obliged and they took her name off of the the case file. They didn't contact her again. So about 50-ish years later, the case is still cold. Mm. This is a famous story in Adelaide. Maybe the most famous in Adelaide when it comes to uh, unsolved mysteries. Uh, you can actually go to the gravesite today and on the gravestone it says, Here lies the unknown man who was found at Somerton Beach, December 1st, 1948. Mm. Wow. Did anything come of the code on the back of the book? People tried and it just led them to dead ends. Mm. So no one was able to crack it. Enter Derek Abbott. Enter. So this is where I think it starts getting really crazy with Derek. It takes it. There's a huge curveball that all the sources where I was researching this story, nobody saw coming. Derek Abbott, he's also a slick math nerd, and he's an engineer, college professor. He's obsessed with this story of the Somerton Man. Uh, he actually spent six years researching and trying to crack the code in the book. Hmm. He also came to a dead end. So he reached out to the detective who currently had the uh, original scrap paper found. And they got in contact and they got to talking. And they uncovered some new things that nobody found in the previous 50 or so years. Dude, is this recent that this came out? Well, it would have been the 90s, because 50 years after 40, 41? 49. 49. So in the 2000s. In the 2000s, this happens. But that evidence is something that I'll be sharing with our patrons. <laughs> so. Jeez Louise, bro. Kiffin wreck, mate. Uh, I've heard of this case. I've, like, seen it, but I've never heard of, like, the evidence. That's what I was going to say. I've heard of the Somerton Man, but never heard anything about it. Most of the stories end with just, yeah. you know, that was it. Yeah. But there's a first-hand account with this, and it's, it's Derek. So this is what I found in, like, trying to dig a little more into the story. Dope. So patrons or non-patrons alike, uh, head to patreon.com slash the3ampod if you want to hear the rest of the story. It's only four quarters. <laughs> Times two. Times two. All right. So they're talking, and they're exchanging information, what they know. Nothing new. Derek asks. Welcome back, everyone. You'll never freaking know I hate you. the truth. <laughs> um, <laughs> Derek doesn't even know the truth. <sighs> but uh, we were just talking about, we closed the, the patron story with how the story went completely firsthand. And usually you just hear like the headlines of the story. And fortunately, there's Derek who's 
kind of make this about himself. <laughs> um, but finds a lot of cool evidence in the process. Substantive ed- evidence. So give us your money. You'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was dope. I literally had no idea it went that deep. That was really cool. Is that you tonight? That's me. Hey, yo. Thanks for that, Deej. I'm up. Okay. My story comes to us this week from a new listener. Sick. I believe her and her boyfriend found our podcast, binged a ton of episodes, and decided to share a story. So shout out Becca. And this story is not actually about Becca so much as her mom. And her mom's name is Valerie. She said, growing up and throughout her mom's entire life, Valerie has had a sixth sense. She's always had impressions or feelings. She's always had and even been able to communicate with people who have passed on. And if they want, they're able to communicate back. Becca even said she has on several occasions like had premonitions of things that were to come and they ended up coming true. So needless to say, Valerie, the veil is thin for her, right? Like on micro or macro scales? What do you mean? Like, I don't know. I don't know about the predictions. You mean like like personally? My friend's going to come visit me? Or like Bush did (laughs) 9-11? I don't know, unfortunately. Um, All I do know is, all I know, all I know is Becca said she has seen proof of like her mom's abilities. Hmm. So stuff has happened to where Becca is a full-on believer. Anyway, Becca growing up, even though she's terrified of the paranormal, is obsessed with the paranormal. (laughs) And I think that might be like a lot of our listeners and even me at times where I'm like, I don't know what attracts me to it so much, but I can't stop. Do you know what I mean? So she's around 14, obsessed with the paranormal, and she gets it in her mind that she wants to play with a Ouija board. Sick. So she starts thinking, how am I going to get one? You know, she's 14. She's going to need help going to the store, tracking one down, right? So she brings it up with her mom. She says, Mom, I really want to try a Ouija board. And as she says those words, her mom's entire demeanor changes. And in Emma's words, or in Becca's words, she says, my mom low-key lost it. Immediately. Freaks out. And says, absolutely not. You are never allowed to bring one of those boards into this house. She loses it. She's so adamant. To the point where she makes Becca promise she will never, ever play with one of these. Becca agrees. You know, did not expect that reaction. But because her mom was so intense about it, it sparks her curiosity. And she asks. Even more? Yeah, like, well. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> what were you told as a kid that you couldn't do? And you ended up doing it because you're way too... Drugs. Curious about it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I'd have to think about it. Rated R movies, maybe? <laughs> Certain video games? <laughs> anyway, Becca's now super interested. <laughs> so she asked her mom, like, why? Why not? And I don't think she settles for the, just because I said so, you know? And keeps asking until finally her mom goes... Because I've had experiences in my life, and you need to trust me. And so maybe reluctantly at first, but eventually her mom tells her her experience. 
So this is now Valerie. When Valerie was in eighth or ninth grade, her and a group of friends decided it would be really fun if they got a Ouija board and they started playing with it. And they chose to do this at school because they were all together at school. And they're like, it would be really fun. It's way more fun than recess, you know? <laughs> so stupid recess. So they get a Ouija board and in between classes and every recess, they go to this seldomly used bathroom, close the door, turn off the lights, and they play with this Ouija board. So they're doing everything they can. They're calling out, trying to make contact. When one day, they're asking for someone to come say hi, and the planchette starts to move. And they all look at each other. Is that you? No. Is that you? No, I swear that's not me. Who is that? Who, who's moving the planchette? They ask the dark bathroom. The request rings out into the empty bathroom, I'm sure echoing on the walls. And the planchette starts to go and slide around the board. As they're all looking at each other, it slides to R E X Rex Rex Rex. Uh, who who are you? And they start asking all these questions. Rex says he was a slave when he was alive. Uh, but I should mention this all took place in Louisiana, my bad. So the South. So Rex tells him he was a slave in life. They ask him, where are you? And he says, I'm lost. And they're like, what are you doing? Like, where are you? What are you trying to do? And he says, I'm searching for my wife and child. They are elated. They made contact. This that's, is- a, that's a literate slave to be spelling all of that out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe, maybe he learned. <laughs> so they make contact. They're stoked. They actually got something to reach out to them. And I'm sure a thousand more times they were like, like, Angela, do you swear it's not you? You know what I mean? And they all were like, no, it's not us. So they all believe none of them are doing it. Bell rings. Recess is over. They have to leave. Well, they start coming back every day and talking to Rex. And every day he's coming back and answering more and more questions. And they're getting closer and closer and feeling more and more attached to Rex. They're stoked. I'm sure they start to tell maybe a couple people outside their little friend group. And one of their male friends is like, yo, I want to try. And they're like, okay. So they bring them in into the bathroom one day, turn off the light, set it all up. They do their little ritual to get ready and they all put their hands in the planchette. And they're like, Rex, can you come? Come talk to us. And the second the guy put his hands on the planchette, they said the entire board was ripped out from under them and flew across the room. And every time they tried with him in the room, it would not work. The board would shift. The planchette wouldn't move until finally they're like, dude, you, you can't be here. For some reason, it doesn't work when you're here. So they kicked him out. Dude, that's the ultimate telling sign that uh, the Ouija board's working. Oh. So when you put your hands on the planchette, it stays still and the board moves. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And you're like, what the? <laughs> yeah, for real. This is next level. Well, they kick his ass out. They're like, Ricky, get the f- out. <laughs> it's not working. He leaves. They keep talking to Rex more and more and more. And they're like daily talking to this guy. They feel connected to this thing. Until one day they're sliding it around. They're having so much fun. And one of them, without telling any of the other ones, goes, Rex, 
Will you just come home with us? Oh, oh shit. shit. <laughs> and if we know anything about invitations, they're very powerful. A big no-no. <laughs> she says those words. The planchette freezes. And the bathroom is all of a sudden deafeningly quiet. And the girls feel different. And the bell rings. One of them runs over, flips the light on, they pack everything up. They look around and they leave. Valerie on school nights lived with her grandma because she was much closer to the school. At her grandma's house, she had a cot in a room that she would sleep on. That night, Valerie goes home to her grandma's, does her nightly routine, and climbs into the little cot and pulls the blankets up over her. Puts her arms in a little prayer and says her prayers. Says, Amen. And she's lying there for a minute. She pauses and thanks and goes, Good night, Rex. Oh, freaking hell. And lays her head back on the pillow and closes her eyes. When she feels something at the foot of her cot. So she opens her eyes real quick and looks down at the foot of her cot. And in the blanket, she sees one indent. And as she's staring at it, two more indents come quickly towards her in the blanket. Almost as if something is crawling towards her, leaving. She can feel the weight on the cot. She freaks out, rips the blanket off, sprints to her grandma's room, jumps in bed with grandma, and is bawling. Grandma tries to calm her down, asking her what's going on, and for some reason, she doesn't want to share. I don't want to tell. So she just says, I had a nightmare. Grandma passes her on the back. He'll be okay. Everything's fine. Takes her a really long time to fall asleep. She eventually does. She wakes up, goes to school the next day, determined not to tell her friends. She's like, this is weird. I don't, I don't know what's going on. This is weird. But as soon as her and her friends get together, it is very apparent that what happened to her wasn't the only thing that happened. Almost the exact same thing happened to another one of her friends. I forgot to mention, as she was lying there in the bed with her grandma trying to fall asleep, she was replaying what went on over and over in her head. She knows she saw what she saw. She saw those imprints in the blanket. But what kept her up most of the night was they weren't imprints of human hands. She remembers them distinctly looking non-human. And that fact creeped her out, I think, the most. So almost the exact same thing happened to one of her friends. And another one of her friends looks at him and shares that she was groped inappropriately while she was sleeping. And so they're all looking at each other and they're like, okay, this isn't, this isn't fun anymore. Valerie said it just clicked in all their heads that Rex wasn't what he was saying. They don't think it was human, that it ever was human, and that they do not want to talk about it anymore. Or talk to him anymore, rather. They're all freaked. They hatch a plan real fast. One of the girls' dads is a pastor. So they pack up the Ouija board, head straight to his church after school, and they confess everything. We know it was dumb. We know it's stupid. We thought it was fun. But now we think it's, it's like messing with us. 
and we invited it to come home with us. I He's think, like, good luck. Yeah. He's like, <laughs> you God did be that. with you. Yeah. <laughs> God bless your souls. No, he quietly listens to everything they said, sits there for a while, and says, let me see the board. They pull out the board and planchette. He takes it, walks outside, and he starts furiously praying. And he douses it in holy water. I thought you were about to say it wasn't a Ouija board. He's like, you idiots, this is checkers. Yeah. <laughs> this is Chinese checkers, ladies. Uh, so he starts praying, douses it with holy water, and all the girls claim when the holy water hit the Ouija board, it started to smoke. And then in there, Valerie knew this is never to be messed with. Weirdly enough, later that day, their friend tells them, the guy who tried to play the Ouija board with them says, dude, at like four or five, the exact same time they're at the church, the hood of his car started to smoke. And the way he described it, all of them instantly think of the Ouija board. So for some reason, I have no idea why it's such a weird detail, but at the same time, the holy water is getting poured on the Ouija board. This guy's car starts smoking as well as the Ouija board. No idea. After that day, none of them ever have any type of experience with Rex again. It seemed to work. And Valerie finishes her story. Looks down at Becca. And Becca's eyes are just wide with terror. She says she was terrified. And for some reason in her head, she, she knew and decided Rex heard her mom tell this story and will now be attracted to, like, terrorizing Valerie's daughter. So she's freaked the F out. She makes her mom sleep with her in her bed for three days straight. And her mom's like, dude, if I knew <laughs> you were going to freak out this bad, I never would have told you. But I need you to understand Ouija boards are never to be messed with. So to close, like I said before, Becca said, I've seen proof of my mom's abilities. I believe she would never make something like this up. And her mom said it was the single most scary paranormal experience of her life. And that's the story of Valerie and Rex. Well, damn. You've mentioned before how you would Try playing with a Ouija board. Sure. You'd give it a shot. Yeah. But I'm following all the rules. I'm not trying to invite no shit or yeah. like say possess my body like someone else that we know. Stories like this don't yeah. deter you. No. It doesn't really deter me either. Dude, it, what the? <laughs> y'all are. Fr- <laughs> so here. I, I, I don't. I just have to see things for myself. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I can't just take somebody else's Dude, word like, for it. I just want to be groped. <laughs> <laughs> the way I see it is the mistake that they made is not one that I would make, huh. which is, hey, come home with us. Dude, I don't know why. I like, I'm very into these ideals um, and principles applying to like everything paranormal. Yeah. So whenever I see patterns and stories, it like, uh, clicks with me and one of them is invitations right and from everything i've researched everything i've read everything i've heard you got to be super careful about what you invite and how you invite 
And so I think you're right. You're pretty meticulous about how you do things. And I don't think you would, but you never know, like, what's an invitation, you know? Like, I don't know. I mean, but, like, how much information do you guys get out of me when we're talking in person? Dude, none. Exactly. So it's like they're not getting anything. I guess. And on top of that, if I did invite, I'm staying the night at your house first. Oh, hell no. So he thinks that's your place or my place, and then I'll leave. Dude, I'm going to pray every demon attacks you. (laughs) See, we grew up Mormon. We are Mormon. Who dat? Not just kidding. (laughs) And we, like, connecting with spirits is something super common in, I would say, almost any religion, especially Christianity. Mm -hmm. So what's the difference i'm not challenging it's more like an open question like i mean rex seems no, like sure. it was probably like a demon bro not like a regular spirit do you remember when i went over demons that whole episode yeah. every, every episode no there was that one time i went pretty deep into demons like and saying like, their names and stuff like that and the sociopathic yeah. nature of them and how there's some that like exist and their whole goal is to like bring about suffering or right. like manipulation. I really do think that those entities, it's possible they exist. That makes sense. Like if you, be- especially if you believe in God, somebody who you think is there to try and bring love or happiness, <laughs> peace. Like there has to be some type of opposition to that. If you believe oh, in did God. You like hear that in the conjuring trailer. Is that in the conjuring trailer? Yeah. He says, every time we swear on a Bible, we acknowledge the like God exists. <laughs> okay, so it's nah. about time we start acknowledging demons exist. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, as corn as that is, there's some truth to that. It's you true. Know? It's true. It's true. And there is like an opposite and opposition in all things. And I, I believe that. So my belief in that scares me enough to like not want to do that. And I will argue playing with the Ouija board in itself is an invitation where you're opening up a conduit or portal of communication with anything out there. It's an unsecured line. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, is there yeah. just like a rule for quote unquote good spirits that they're not allowed to interact with people who play with Ouija boards? I've heard. So when I was on the mission, this is going to get deep LDS. So if you're not LDS, not a lot of this might make sense. But if you are a return missionary, you'll understand what I'm saying. I was handed a piece of paper once on my mission and someone was like, yo, you should read this. And apparently some stake president somewhere prayed and prayed and prayed and studied for hours and hours and he had really pressing questions about what the afterlife would be like. And he was in his study room, and it's after this really long prayer session where he's like trying to consider what it will be like after we leave this earth. And he falls asleep. And he had a dream about what the, it was, the next step. Yeah. And he describes this whole dream. And in one part, this part stood out to me because I'm an asshole who loves scary stuff. He mentions that he could see the irresponsible spirits who answered to the calls of like Ouija boards and things like that. So he literally says there's like, it's, I think it's like frowned upon. You're not supposed to do it, but the, the ability is there. Hmm. And that like stood out to me so hard. So I don't know. That's an interesting take. It's a spicy take president. <laughs> yeah. Like maybe you're not supposed to in the next life or whatever, but I don't know. Weird to think that there's like rules like that in the next life. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how real that is. And also I read this over 10 years ago, half asleep in Australia. So dude, take that for what it is. Like cool story, bro. Yeah. Assuming that's true, 
weird to think that there's like rules yeah. like that. I do believe though, like think about prayer, think about all these modes of communication with higher power, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's also modes of communication we've made to communicate with like spirits and stuff like that. So I don't know. For me, it's like a, a radio that you're like tuning in to get the frequency. And when you're with a Ouija board, in my opinion, you're opening yourself up to any frequency that like answers back. That's true. That's that is I, true. I don't know. So for me, it's like... a no. <laughs> <laughs> Even no, I bet 900 times out of 900 times nothing would happen. It's still just like not worth the risk to me. I don't know. I see you. I see you. I don't want no demon up my ass, bro. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't try a Ouija board, would you? I'd never try that. I'm too scared. <laughs> any like any reason why? Just because you don't want. Mama said it's bad. There you go. There you go. Mama said it's bad. There was this one time I tried to. It was gonna play on this broken one we found in an abandoned insane asylum. Oh, I got pissed at you. And Charles got so mad. Everything in my body was screaming, "No, stop him!" There was also <laughs> blood on it, and it was torn in half. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there were a couple of red flags, but not enough to deter me. (laughs) Sean's like, "Mm, no, I'm going to do it. (laughs) It was once I was requested by someone in the group not to, then I didn't. So that's probably my only, like, way I stop. (laughs) Um, Real quick, just once again, shout out Becca. She said, I've been binging y'all's podcast for the last few days. I'm glad to give y'all a good story. Y'all have definitely gained some forever fans. Hell yeah. Becca, that was a good story. Well, I enjoyed that. This last part's important. She said, my boyfriend and I love y'all's humor. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Just circle the truth. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she says, I look forward to every new episode. I had to bring that up because that, that dude in the last one was like, sit through god-awful humor to yeah. get to the good stories. <laughs> Someone left that review for us. Yeah. Listen, to each their own. Some people like this. Some people like that. Some people like none of it. And that's okay. Becca, thank you. Uh, I I really like that story. Cool. I did too. That was fun. Dude. That was way better than mine. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. Dude, looking down and seeing imprints, like seeing one and then being like, what the hell is that? And all of a sudden it's like, do, 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 up your bed. Holy shit. I would (laughs) shit my bed. That's what I I did. Start swinging, bro, whatever it was. Her first mistake was taking the blanket off. It seemed like it was protected. Oh, you have to go under the blanket. That protects you. (laughs) Wrap in the blanket, run to grandma's room. Exactly. There you go. All right. Well, I had another story tonight, but I'm not going to share it. (laughs) That's fine. I'm done. (laughs) Sean, that's you. All right. I'm up next. I actually have a couple stories. A little bit shorter, but I want to, you know share this first one because it might be applicable to just about anyone and I feel like it's information you need to be aware of. Hell yeah, brother. So, just shortly after quarantine happened last year, this comes from this one girl who has just basically holed up for quarantine. Like, she's been at home. She's kind of tired of it. She decides to go for a run one day. And she mentions that her cardio wasn't so great anymore after being holed up for quarantine. So she stops to walk and as she's like walking and she's like on her way to a park that's close by her house. As she's walking, she notices that there's a guy that seems to be following her. Yikes. 
And she's not sure, but she decides to pick up pace again and eventually loses him. Now, at that point, she just decides to go home after her quick jog in the park and puts herself to bed shortly after. Strangely enough, as she's laying in bed, she notices what appears to be like headlights going up and down her street. Like she can just see like the lights, you know, you can like see the headlights outside your window. Mm -hmm. She's not sure what it is, but that's what it seems like initially. So she gets up, gets out of bed and looks out the window. And she mentions that the blinds that she has semi-see-through. She could barely see out and she hoped that people couldn't really see in. But she looks down and she sees this car that's going back and forth down the road. Eventually... It just stops right in front of her house. And then the same guy that she saw in the park gets out of the passenger side door and looks over at her house and up at her second floor window that she's now looking out of, and she swears that he sees sees her. So she, like, jumps back in bed. Are her lights on? No. Okay. She was already like in bed. The windows open, the lights are on. (laughs) She's like, (gasps) (laughs) We were at your house months ago. It was nighttime and the lights were on inside. And Angie was like trying to creep look through the window. (laughs) And you're like, They can see you. (laughs) I don't know why I thought that was so funny. So she hoped that he couldn't see her. But as he looked up at the second floor window she was in, she swears that he sees her and like smiles and is she home alone like she's She's home alone so she jumps back in bed and like the lights kind of go away so she after a few minutes falls asleep and then wakes up to a hell no tapping on her window oh what on her window on the second floor on her window she looks up and the curtain, the blinds are semi-see-through, and she sees a figure standing outside her window, or apparently standing outside her window. She mentions it's the second floor, but there's like a little lip outside that was kind of like a roof area. Immediately, she reaches for a phone and calls the police. The police, the operator, tells her, advises her to not go anywhere near the window, just in case they break it and try and get in. So she like crawls out of bed and into her bathroom so that she can like see the road and like see when the police come. The operator tells her the police will be there in five minutes. So she waits. Eventually, the tapping stops. And then she hears a thump as if someone had just jumped down off of this ledge potentially. And then another minute or two after, just silence. And then a on her front door. It's the police. The man's gone. And she's still on the phone with the operator. So she mentions, she's like, the police are here. And as she's about ready to get up, the operator says, hold on. The police haven't got there yet. So she waits. After a few minutes, the operator says again, okay, the police are there. This time she looks out her window. She sees three cop cars out front. She goes down, verifies with the operator who it is opens the door, and they say, yeah, there's no one there anymore. But they did find, close to where that ledge was, a small rope and small knife. 
they had a cop watch her house a couple of days after that, and they never saw anything else. Dude, I'm sorry, son. I would be moving. <laughs> I could not live there anymore. Oh, for sure. I'm not down. But I wanted to share that because specifically the whole them knocking say it, saying it was the police is something I feel like someone would fall for. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's something you got to you know, put in your, your, your repertoire of information to not go just directly to the door when someone says they're the police. That reminds me of uh, people playing like the like recordings of babies crying. Yeah. Outside people's windows. Like that's so easy to respond to if you're not aware of, you know. And I think just bottom line is be aware, right? I, I do know it's irresponsible of me to bring this up without knowing, but I do know there are ways to verify if you're ever in a situation and you, you're not sure if it's a cop. Mm-hmm. you can verify somehow. We should look that up and figure it out. <laughs> but I know, I, I think you can ask like for their name or something, and then you can call the police station and have them verify. You know what I mean? Yeah. But. I'm sure you can. Like, like that sounds like it makes sense. Yeah. But that would, I could see just being so relieved that the police were there. You don't think about it. Run down there, throw the door open. She was lucky she was still on the phone with the operator. Totally. And still talking to him. Otherwise, she would have just gone to the door. Oh, what a like. And if you look, it's such a calculated plan because he knew I'm going to freak her the F out. There's no way she doesn't call the cops. Freak her out long enough to I know where she could call the cops and then go and pretend to be the cops, you know? Yeah. Ugh. Dude, it's Elon. Oh, dude. Parents weren't there. They didn't want to watch their kid get taken away. How old is this person? Though? I assumed since they're living on their own that they're probably adult age, but still it could be a lot. I don't know, bro. <laughs> it could be. Dude. They're everywhere. We need yeah, Alon needs to leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> Stress me out. So that story though came from Let's Not Meet on Reddit from user Hermione Jean Granger. <laughs> <laughs> That's Hermione? What the My next story, though, is something that was broadly covered on news back in 1999 and more recently. But just to jump right into it, back on June 30th, 1999, there was a body found outside of St. Louis, Missouri. Now, you've been to St. Louis, right? Mm -hmm. You haven't. No. All I know about St. Louis is Nelly, the rapper. A... Uh, I've been there a couple of times. I used to live in Western Kentucky, so it was like three hours away. But um, this is probably 20 miles outside the city where you kind of get to this more rural area. The body is that of Ricky McCormick. Now, the time that he was found on June 30th, 1999, he had been missing for three days. And at this point, his body has started to decompose. The uh, investigators, they search the body for information. They take them back to uh, have the autopsy. And the coroners are unable to determine what the uh, cause of death cause of death is. More they, shitty coroners? Yeah. They, they officially label it as undetermined. Now, the officials, like the police and investigators, do suspect foul play, though. Eventually, though, all of their leads dry up. They know who the guy is. They know who his family is, but they can't. Did they check the seams of his clothing? (laughs) Hmm? Maybe, dude. I don't know. 
All the leads dry up, and it's just added to a list of cold cases in the area. Then, in March of 2011, the FBI releases files regarding the case. So even though it had gone cold for the police, the FBI had been on it. The reason is Chief of Bureau's Crypto Analysis, Dan Olson, reveals that two pages had been found on the body. The pages were a cipher. What the hell's going on? That until then, in March 2011, the FBI had been unable to crack. I have images of the cipher. Dude, this was on the same Watch Mojo video. Was it? <laughs> McCormick, yeah. Yeah, dude. I uh, found this on Reddit Unresolved Mysteries. Unresolved or unsolved? Unresolved. What the? Okay. They just did, they doing their own thing. So this is, this is part of the cipher. Ugh. <laughs> the handwriting. Like some dyslexic person wrote it? Yeah. So it's just like, Lines of letters. And this is this is the guy, Ricky McCormick. Hmm. So two pages of that was found on his body. Was found on his body. Now, when Dan Olson reveals this, they reveal the pages and release it with a request to the public for help because they've been unable to crack it. And Dan Olson talks about how he went about trying to crack it. Like it, immediately when he got the pages, he uh, separated all of the letters, like put them up on like a board. He tried everything. He even then started getting his uh, associates to come in and try and assist him. Nothing. And to get in a little bit more to what exactly it takes to break any code, essentially it takes four basic steps. And he kind of goes over this. Number one is determine, determining the language used in the cipher, whether it's English, Spanish. In this case, it's English. Then determining the system used for how they changed it around. And the FBI has not been able to get past step two. <laughs> and now he says, like he tried everything, even putting it into these complex computer systems, trying to have the computers hack it. They still haven't been able to figure it out. Number three, though, is restructuring the key so that you can then solve the cipher and then restructuring all of the plain text. So to this point, though, they haven't been able to get past number two. Now, a little bit of background on Ricky McCormick is people always described him as that he stood out as different from his peers. His mother um, described him as her words, not mine, retarded. Oh, gosh. Damn, Mom. <laughs> and his cousin, who uh, shared just kind of like a brotherly relationship with him, said that he would often talk like he was in another world. Huh. They're like, ma'am, and how was, what was your son like? <laughs> he was retarded. Well, he was retarded. <laughs> so they believed, though, that he had some, suffered from some form of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Mm. And... A couple of weeks before he turned up missing and eventually dead, he had gone down to Orlando on a trip that, according to sources, was he was running and picking up a bunch of weed for somebody that was back in St. Louis. After he got back, 
He was described as becoming increasingly erratic and his behavior was paranoid. He acted scared. So something allegedly happened down there and him coming back was what kind of tripped this off. And they said, so uh, Ricky McCormick had just gone to the city of Orlando a week or two before he turns up missing. He was a runner. He seemed to be a runner. He had picked up a shipment of weed for some people living back in St. Louis. They were named Baja and Juma Hamdala, and they owned a chain of gas stations as probably a front, I would assume, um, back in St. Louis. He uh, had become increasingly erratic, paranoid, acted scared. In fact, on June 22nd, he had gone to the ER complaining about chest pains. Then he was checked into a hospital once again on June 25th, complaining about something similar, chest pains, something like that. There is a theory regarding this that he was looking for someplace safe. And he just said he was experiencing chest pain so he could be somewhere public and safe. Huh. Doctors ruled out a heart attack as a reason of death when eventually like he, uh, his body was found. So they took that out of the equation as well. Now, the biggest mystery behind all of this, outside of the fact of who killed him, is what the cipher was for. The cipher that for 12 years, the FBI couldn't crack. And their actual chief of bureau's cryptanalysis, Don Olson, could not figure out. Mm. Now, Don Olson, to this day, says that he believes the ciphers mean something. I was going to say, like, what if it was just him, like, schizophrenically writing some shit down? Yeah, no, so the three major, like, theories surrounding what the ciphers were for, the first and probably the most popular is that McCormick just wrote them for himself and that he was just writing in some sort of cipher for himself. Now, his family, though, said he would never write in code before, and on top of this, McCormick was described as illiterate. Like his mom said he was retarded, but like apparently the only thing that they knew he could write was his name. So the second theory is he was carrying the codes for someone else, which potentially could be could be a correct theory based on the fact that he probably couldn't write them on his own. Mm. And if he was, they obviously or probably wouldn't mean anything. And then the third is that the notes had no importance at all. And they're simply just nonsensical scribblings. So those are kind of the three theories surrounding it. Don Olson, the uh, head of Bureau's cryptanalysis, says he believes they still mean something. However, they've been unable to decipher the codes. And they've been made public? They've been made public, yeah. Huh. We'll post them up when we post about the episode. I would imagine, since they're public, that many people have tried to crack it. Much like the Zodiac. Yeah. And so, I don't know. At this point, I think that that cipher is top three on the FBI's like unbroken codes, something like that. Whoa. Yeah. So it's super crazy. No one's still been able to decipher it. And I think, in my opinion, is potentially it could mean something. But if he's illiterate, his code may also be illiterate, making it that much harder to... <laughs> Decipher. Whoa. That's a crazy thought. Yeah. That's what I think, though. Huh. So they still haven't determined his death. Still haven't determined his death. It was labeled as, 
what did they say? The official the official title was undetermined. Mm, that's Dude. sad. To what this the day, f- they still do not know. Okay, so random. You guys both shared those. Tonight. As you were like telling your story, I was like, "Damn, this is kind of trippy." Because I didn't go looking for like this kind of story. Having either. some code on your dead body. Yeah, yeah. There's another one that I once almost shared, and I, I was gonna look it up real quick and share it tonight. But it's this lady who was found under the weirdest circumstances, and the prevailing theory is she was a spy, so she had all this <laughs> shit on her codes and whatnot but so weird dude so such a crazy mystery yeah i don't know like movie level like what is going on oh and that would be the worst movie to watch because you never find out what happened <laughs> yeah just they roll end credits oh yeah no i would be so i would be so upset but uh real quick i did get my information from on unresolved mysteries user polyphemus 117 is who posted about it and then I looked up some articles and found one from Riverfront Times, which I assume is out of St. Louis. Huh. But uh, that's where I got most of my information, so shout out to them. Dude, wild. That's it for me tonight, though. Thank you, Sean. Yo, can I share one last thing? Yes. Yeah. Okay. This was sent to us by a listener who also recently found our podcast. I think his, his name is Keith. Oh, sick. Keith said he exhausted all his podcasts he normally listens to went into the search field typed in scary stories saw a wall of shows and randomly clicked ours and became hooked so shout out keith but his story is not so much a story but it's going to spark a conversation that i think will go somewhere but nonetheless i found it super interesting Mm -hmm. so he uh he starts off by giving a disclaimer saying I understand there might not be anything to this. I just think it's super interesting. Mm -hmm. And I might be guilty of what I hate conspiracy theorists do, where they're just like taking innocuous like details and being like, it must mean this, right? So he's like, I'm fully aware this might not mean anything. However, I still think it's interesting. And I, I do too. So he said, I served my mission from 2013 to 2015. I'm from Texas. And before I left the MTC, the missionaries who were assigned to his home area in the ward. So when Mormon boys are called to a mission, before they actually go to the place they're going to live for two years, they're sent to a training center where they're like, you know, taught how to teach the gospel and, and, you know, refine all their teaching skills. Back in the day, there was only one MTC and it was in Utah. Mm -hmm. So, like, all the missionaries came through there. And there's a lot of, like, myths and legends about the MTC. Because I will say this. As a missionary, myths and legends are are a very important part of your life. (laughs) Because your life is so singularly focused on service. I think anything that's not that, you just kind of hold on to. Yeah, (laughs) so storytelling is huge on the mission. You hear a myth or something, and it's like, it, it means so much to you. And it travels, too. Yeah, like wildfire, like every missionary is. So before he leaves to the MTC, the missionaries in his home ward go, hey, have you ever heard of the tunnels that are under the MTC? (laughs) Now, have you guys ever heard that? I've heard of tunnels, yeah. Under the MTC? Yeah. Under BYU, I have. Really? Have you? Yeah, I've heard. 
I think that I've there's seen tunnels under MTC or BYU or both. Um, under BYU specifically, but I wouldn't doubt MTC as well since it's right by campus. Yeah, the BYU be. and MTC are really are right next door to each I was other. Say I could be thinking of BYU, and it's just like registering as MTC, but I feel like it was MTC. I think I have a friend who posted on her story traveling in the tunnels for of BYU. Like they were huge too. Like she was driving in a golf cart. What the fuck? Yeah. yeah, and there's like a conference center right by the MTC as well, like across the street. So I really wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting, right? Yeah. I've never heard of them. DJ used to work at the MTC. Did you ever hear about that or see anything? I don't think I heard about it till like later on. Huh. So, okay. Did they just like bring that up for no reason or did they like, were they trying to like say something for it? I think they were just like, bro, like, did you know it's so crazy? Because <laughs> there's a lot of like little hidden gems to the MTC, um, which we'll go over some later. But uh, anyway, nonetheless, this pricks his curiosity and then probably leaves his head as he prepares to leave his home for two years. Right. Gets the MTC. And while you're in the MTC and you're studying for 10 hours a day, you also have service projects you have to do. And his service project was stocking the cafeteria. So him and his little group of missionaries, they're – you know, packing away all the supplies and packing it up. And one of the jobs required someone to take a big case of food downstairs. So he volunteers, starts taking it downstairs. And as he's going down the stairs, he remembers tunnels under the MTC. Immediately, he's going downstairs and he thinks, this is weird. Because the space, the basement under the cafeteria, he says, is so big. And he also thinks it's so odd because it's, why are they putting, like, food down here? It's so inconvenient. Like, you'd have to go all the way down the stairs into this big-ass basement when you wanted to restock. He's just thinking these things. It's so weird. When he comes across a secured area in the basement, A door with a huge sign on it. It says, maintenance and electrical. There's a warning. Pretty standard, right? Right. But then under it, it says, warning. Any missionaries found here could be sent home. He thinks that's so weird. Sus, dude. And he decides he's going to look around just a little bit more. That's only illegal if you get caught. (laughs) He goes other places and he sees like an iron grate, an iron gate, and behind it, long, long tunnels with the same warning on the front. Missionaries in this area can be sent home. Takes out his camera and snaps a couple photos. <laughs> Let's see these pics. Before I show you, he thinks this is so weird. Something about it was just so off, and he said, but maybe this is just how they build buildings in Utah. (laughs) (laughs) So here's his photos. And we'll put these up on our Instagram or on the YouTube video when it comes out. Here's the sign. Danger, electrical, mechanical, equipment room. Then under it in a different font, missionaries entering here are subject to being sent home. Hmm. Is there cameras? 
Doesn't look like there's any What's cameras. at the top there? Is that a camera? And it looks like an unfinished pipe. This is definitely sus, dude. Whoa, it's not letting me go up. Just show Miranda. Okay. I think that we need to go to the MTC and sneak in. It's like the freaking catacombs. Yeah. Ooh, kind of. You've been there. Yeah. Miranda's been to the catacombs. Whoa, dude, and Perry. Oh, yeah. Oh, we. <laughs> So, in the photo, it is very long tunnels that are have an iron gate in front of them with the padlock and with these warning signs all over them. Yeah. Does he say anything else? He said, you know, he thinks this is weird, doesn't think too much else of it. He does have a friend who works in the maintenance crew at BYUI, so BYU-Idaho, mm-hmm. and he says that guy is unaware of any tunnels over there. He said he's worked in factories before and other industrial buildings, and I've never seen any tunnels just for piping and wire. Like, that seems extra. Hmm. He just think, he thought it was all weird. Why not just have a regular locked door? Why why have this extra warning from, for like, specifically for missionaries? Which, like, for me, piques my curiosity more. You say, like, specifically missionaries can't be in here, then all of a sudden I'm like, yo, I want to be in here. Right, yeah. Do you think it's maybe because like a missionary got hurt or died or something? Most likely. Yeah. Some Kitabati missionary (laughs) got lost down there and died. Uh, He said, I've searched for explanations on this. I've tried Googling. I've tried searching. All his searches come up not fruitful. The only thing he can find is super anti-Mormon people talking about it (laughs) and referring to it as... Trigger rape tunnels. Oh, <laughs> so, so that, that that's it. That's where he leaves that. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows what they're used for? It's just weird. And yeah. along with all the other little uh, Easter eggs and things around the MTC, it's cool to add to the mythos, I guess, for missionaries going there. He switches gears, but he also says kind of on the same lines. We know the church has a bunker, and I've been obsessed with this bunker because it is so weird to me. Um, and he just goes in a little bit more detail I never knew. They have a bunker or vault in the side of a mountain for genealogy and church records. That's up Little Cottonwood. It's called Granite Mountain Records Facility. Millions and millions of dollars, dude. Dude. He says, sure, the church is all about order and records. We all know this. I get that. But in the side of a mountain carved into granite, doesn't that feel a little bit extra? Hold on. He says... Like, not like a building, like a bank vault with, like, metal doors? You you guys, this is not a normal vault. It's more secure than, like, any other institution has. Well, they carved out all the granite to build the temple, so they they already had the hole. Well, there you go. Just kidding. (laughs) I mean... Dude, we got I saw a vault like that in Richie Rich, dude. (laughs) You're right. Rich people be doing stuff like that. I... Oh, sorry. Let me just, uh, I'll express how much it is. He says, seems like a bit much. I understand the need for protection and climate control for preservation of records is a pretty, it's a pretty good place. Yeah. But why the 14 ton doors that can withstand a nuclear blast? The National Archives in DC doesn't even have a store or doesn't even store their stuff like we do. Also, the church began building the facility in May of 1960. By coincidence, the U.S., the United States military began building the Cheyenne Mountain NORAD 
North American Aerospace Defense Command complex in June 1961. I mean, that seems like it's pretty clear then. It's a bunker for end times. In relatively close Colorado, which is also built into a granite mountain. So it's like the same, same, same. Uh, do you think the church could be doing more than family history? Who knows? I don't know. I've often wondered what's stored in there. It seems to me it's like, I don't know, way more than Fort Knox. So, so you, your imagination, you could understand why it would run wild. Legitimately, my first thought is it's a bunker. Like they're building it to save specific lives. Like that's kind of what NORAD's for, right? Uh, NORAD. It's like a bunker that like POTUS can go to. Is that all it's for? I feel like well, it's... Well, I mean, it's not. that's not all it's okay. for. But, like, that's my first thought when I think of that. Huh. I mean, that, that makes sense. But then that's also concerning because that means, like, the church that we belong to <laughs> believes there could be an event in which that would be necessary. I mean, like, <laughs> have you seen Jerusalem? It's With a Z? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Mormons are all about, you know, emergency preparedness. Doomsday preppers, So it makes sense, bro. like, the headquarters is making, like... The biggest one, you know? <laughs> Dude, I, and like 80% of the Doomsday Prepper episodes are like filmed in Utah. <laughs> yeah. like, but wow. like they definitely are storing other things in there. like Artifacts, like I think of Norway. Is that what you're going to say? Sort of small, That's what it's Svalbard, yeah. Yeah, yeah, with all the seeds. Like for everything I imagine, mm-hmm. if it's a climate-controlled temperature in there, that's probably something that they're storing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, dude, we got all the all the artifacts. I don't. We got the Holy it. Grail. We got the Ark. <laughs> sort of Laban. You remember uh, in uh, Indiana sphere, Jones where they're Leona. rolling down like the aisles of boxes and they put the uh, Ark of the Covenant? That's actually in there. <gasps> it's right over there, bro. Right, like right where I live. <laughs> Wild dude. Yeah, I'll be the first one there if like something pops off. I'll just drive up the road. And yeah, I mean, yeah. Knock you're on right. the fourteen ton door. <laughs> Let me. I tell stories. <laughs> <laughs> I'm important. I have. 20 listeners. <laughs> They're like, oh, let him in. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, he kind of leaves it there. He says, I'm like you guys. I'm just curious. I love stories. He's not saying anything comes of it. It's just interesting to ponder about. And when you're on the mission, this is literally like what you do half the time. It's just like overanalyze the smallest details because you're bored. <laughs> and it's an escape. Um, I remember being fascinated in the, in the MTC with Narnia holes. Oh, yeah, dude. Have you ever heard about Narnia holes? Haven't. They're just another. Wait. Oh, or is there more? Let me just finish this. Oh, I'm sorry. Before I, no, no, no worries. Because I want to do that. Hold on. He goes. Maybe I'm just trying to come up with one, like a crazy story or theory. But to be fair to myself, it's kind of not hard when we're talking about tunnels and bunkers and the church already well known for emergency preparedness, and people already say we're a cult. So it's like it's pretty easy to, to like take these little details and go crazy with them right i wish it would tell us what's in there <sighs> that'd be dope it's like how many things are we gonna label sacred <laughs> this one's secret back to the tunnels i remember when i was at byu i was looking on like our student job website and there was a posting for tunnel rat what? and that tunnel was a rat yeah and that was what they called the people who cleaned the tunnels so, what confirmed the? that they're real, obviously, with the picture as well. 
but you know what you what need are to they do? used for? You need to go get Apply. a job. Yeah. I'm <laughs> going to go back to school. I'm going <laughs> to get a student job as a tunnel rat, and that'll be my life. There you go. What a degrading yeah. job title. Tunnel rat. <laughs> I kind of like it. I dude. feel like, yeah, like it would be appealing to some people and like degrading to others because <laughs> I think that would be kind of dope too. Uh, kind of switching gears just a tiny bit. This whole thing, the reason why it stood out to me is because Mormons, and I'm sure this is not unique to Mormons, but Mormons and especially Mormon missionaries love to tell stories. They love to talk about like these theories and thoughts and stuff like as, as straight up entertainment, right? And there are so many you hear individually on your own missions but universally everyone hears them i swear this happened on my mission it's like oh it did in norway people it will also have, happen in brazil okay people will have this sign where they get their tie their necktie and they throw it over their shoulder anytime anybody did that that means what they were saying it has a good chance of it not being true or like it's this is not doctrine and yeah they'll flip their tie and then tell it you know and that's like a part it's a part of even this podcast where like we know maybe not every story on this podcast we told is true, but there's still entertainment and value in it. It's like fun. It's fun to go there and imagine if it is. And with that, I wanted to share just some of the highlights or the first ones that come to your guys' minds of like those legends we all heard. And we could start with the Narnia hole. But before we do, this is going to be a bonus bonus story for the week double <laughs> yeah to make up for last week daily double so if you're interested at all at all um go to our patreon patreon.com slash the 3 a.m pod we're gonna talk about some of those legends we've all heard starting with the narnia holes so narnia holes were nothing but little Cubby holes are places to hide. Uh, this is the second time we've come back. <laughs> I think we should just close it. Let's, and that's what I'm saying. Uh, Let's close this episode. It's been a fun night for all of us. Miranda, we're happy to have you. Happy to be here. Hey, yo. And with that, bye, love you, be safe. Be careful out there. Trust you to watch your back. Miranda? Mama said so. I was thinking the same. (laughs) I was thinking the same. Mama said so. Goodbye, guys. Hey, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of 3AM. If you want to support us, visit our Patreon where patrons have access to exclusive content. If you're not able to support us monetarily, don't worry. This episode is on us. You can still rate and review us on whatever platform you listen to us on. It really does go a long way. You can also follow us on social media. Our handle everywhere, including Patreon, is the 3AM Pod. Finally, do you have any scary stories? If so, submit them to our website, the3ampodcast.com. We love any audio or visual aids that can help bring your stories to life. So file uploads are welcome with your written submissions. We're anxious and excited to hear from you. On a hot summer night in 1988, Jane Borowski was stabbed 27 times by an unknown man. 
She was seven months pregnant. My name is Jane Borowski. I survived, and I remember everything. Jane is the lone survivor of a serial killer. I'm your host, Jennifer Amell, and this is Dark Valley. Join us in our search for America's unknown serial killer. Subscribe to Dark Valley. Out now. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery and I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects.